You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. Well, I'm delighted today to have in our studio Koichi Takata from Koichi Takata Architects. Welcome, Koichi. Thank you. Koichi, just before we uh, dive in, although that's not a great word to use when we're talking about bricks, but we talk about some of your greater projects, I wondered whether you could tell me a little bit about where you grew up, a little bit about your upbringing. Well, I grew up everywhere <laughs> around the world. Thanks to my dad, I had different business across the world. So I was uh, actually, in fact, born in Hong Kong and we lived in Singapore and then eventually head back to Tokyo Mm -hmm. and my parents are Japanese. So I didn't actually know Japan until I was six, six years old. So culturally shocked, as you can imagine. And then I essentially did all the base education, primary, high school sort of stuff in Japan. When you say you were culturally shocked when you were sort of six, what what is the defining aspects of moving back to Japan? Does any of that stick in your mind? Yeah, I think I remember the climate. So Hong Kong, obviously, I don't remember. I was a baby. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure I was a happy baby, (laughs) hopefully. But Singapore, I very much so remember the tropical climate Mm -hmm. and I love the tropical climate. Right. And growing up as a kid, I only remember summers, right? Maybe a bit of spring, summers. No autumn, no winters. Yeah. So imagine all, pretty much all warm days. So heading back to Tokyo, it was in a cold, one of the coldest days. In fact, it was snowing. Oh, wow. We get off the aircraft. We didn't have a terminal, so you have to get off the ladder. Mm-hmm. I remember, wow. I said, gee. And I was so looking forward to finally see Japan. I mean, obviously, I'm Japanese heritage. Yes. But... My first impression was, wow. What have you taken me to? Very much shocked. I still remember. Mm -hmm. So the climate was very much my first impression, being very cold. And obviously, four seasons, Japan has very distinctive sort of uh, transition into one season to another. Mm -hmm. And we culturally celebrate that transition. So eventually, I left Japan to study architecture. I think the notion of architecture well, really didn't exist in Japan. I mean, yes, in a Western notion, yes, but traditionally speaking, it was more carpentry. Mm-hmm. So I thought I should learn about architecture in a sense of more Western, you know. But where did that sort of interest come from during your schooling? New York. New York. I was shocked. To look at the city of New York, Manhattan especially. Yes. There was a TV program. I was 16. I watched this Japanese architects or Japanese, now American architects. Toshiko Mori, I remember she was very young, migrated to New York, started a practice. So this uh, broadcast followed her. Right. And and I was very impressed with these cities and, and especially how she adapted to education and she essentially had the practice, established practice in the States and she's very much still successful architects, practitioner, as well as educator. So she teaches at Harvard University. Mm-hmm. So I sort of studied her background and I thought, well, one day that'd be nice if I follow her path. Oh, right. 
and uh, sort of that uh, spirit that if she can do it <laughs> from coming from similar cultural background, maybe I could. <laughs> Very naively <laughs> went to New York when I was 18. So that was my sort of, if you like, start of, let's say, career as an architect. Your shining light. And an architect, yeah. yeah. Naively. <laughs> <laughs> Koichi, though, you, you've spoken about that sort of impression when you were 16. Did you then seek out what you needed to do in terms of subjects, I mean, to get to New York? How yeah. was that? Well, Manhattan had everything, in my opinion. Obviously, skyscrapers, just a you know, childhood memory of looking at the Tokyo. I mean, Tokyo is very much a seismic, you know, earthquake-prone city, so... Mm-hmm. Building tend to be low, ideally lower than higher. Looking at Manhattan with all this high skyscraper was just astonishing. And uh, then I wanted to see in person. I just so desperately wanted to see. And I think I was doing the BMX. So freestyle, so do all all kinds of tricks. And I was sort of good. The BMX bike? Yes, I was champion in Japan. Oh, wow. Like tour around Japan with American friends and Japanese friends that are doing the tricks with me and at some point earning semi-professional. Really? <laughs> so I could have been in a BMX professional rather than an architect. But anyway, culturally, I was so uh, intrigued by American culture mm-hmm. at the time. And New York was, I suppose, the symbolic image of this unbelievable Mecca mecca of everything to do with the city Mm. and i suppose the desire so if you make it in new york succeed in new york you can sort of make it anywhere (laughs) french sinatra yeah so i just needed to go see the city so obviously my parents had very strict uh, upbringing my dad said well that's very silly what do what you're going to do in new york i said maybe i'll be an artist (laughs) Maybe I can do a few tricks on the street. And earn money. Or every parent's dream to yeah, hear that. But yeah, my dad said that's ridiculous. Okay. So anyhow, so I found in between architecture and engineering, my dad had the engineering education. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, maybe I'll mix that. And my, my mom's very artistic. So I thought I took 50-50. Architecture was sort of standing between. So, you know, I applied to architectural school. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, I got in. So... I then moved to New York and I remember talking about the first impression. Gee, Manhattan was unbelievable. Coming, I think I came out of Lincoln Tunnel. Oh, yes. The midtown, you look up, go, what? This is Manhattan. I could not believe the height of the skyscrapers. And I'm curious, I haven't as yet been to Japan, but it's a lot more, I mean, it's it's heavily populated. And so I would imagine on that scale, it competes with New York. But is it is it the buildings that make the difference? I think that in a more vertical sense, yes. Japan was not as vertical, right. vertically lived, mm. right? or Tokyo, let's say, compared to New York. New York meaning New York City. And just that density really... I was so impressed as a first impression. And I ended up living in a place called Stuyvesant Town. So this was 18th Street and 1st Avenue. Mm-hmm. So also sort of, I suppose now I could say it looked like a social housing, but made of bricks. <laughs> and I think it was the model by the Le Corbusier, sort of an idealistic sort of utopian city model. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you had a lot of space in between building blocks, apartment blocks. Mm-hmm. And building itself was 12, 12 stories, so it was not as high as other buildings. And of course, made of bricks, mm-hmm. every cavity, so couldn't go any higher. Something about it felt very intimate. If you're not looking at the quality of the space, but in terms of spatial sense, 
there was gee, a lot of space in between. So there was a basketball court, the garden, and I used to play basketball or baseball and stuff in between buildings. And I really liked this place. And I, I liked the color of bricks as well. I think somehow <laughs> gave me that impression. And the first time I lived in actually brick building, in fact, in Japan, earthquake, so tend not to use bricks. No. More ornamental sense, yes, yes, but not structurally. Yeah, that was my first time living in this brick building and sort of high rise, if, my, if I yeah. may say. So it was quite exciting. Were you living by yourself then? or were, no, were share, you sharing. Sharing. Yeah, yep. two bedrooms and I had one bed. And, okay. And uh, looking at the World Trade Center then, was the Twin Towers then, uh, as, yeah. as we all perhaps remember. Yes. And yeah, and so Manhattan, where I lived was very good. Yes. But eventually, after three years, three and a half years, it became very intimidating for me. Mm-hmm. And the other building is obviously very high, high rise. Yes. And uh, you are crammed in these boxes after boxes of curtain wall, glass, metal, building, shiny buildings, and you can't even open windows. Mm. So at some point, I remember I sort of went to office like KPF, my good friends worked there. So I used to visit mm-hmm. and I had a little bit of work experience and so on, but gee, I, I hated it. I liked the view, like yes. unbelievable view, but I felt like I mean, this spaceship could not breathe properly. And how did you find studying? I mean, I just wondered when you went to study architecture, whether that was living up to what you thought it was. Because from what it sounds like, you've sort of gone on a bit of a journey with someone there that's gone before you. How did that live up to your expectations? I think it was far from what I wanted mm-hmm. <laughs> from my, my expectation. I think it's obviously there, there always be a reality check at some point in the age of 17 and 18. <laughs> you dream, dreamt of everything that you know could happen to you. But look, don't get me wrong. I really enjoy living in Manhattan. And But architecturally speaking, I felt that there was a few schools that, such as Cooper Union, Columbia University, I had a lot of friends and I went to see, talk to them, exchange ideas or went to see their studio and all this. Very exciting. Mm-hmm. There were prominent architects at the time who I follow. John Haydack was heading Cooper Union, Bernard Schumi, Columbia, and there was Richard Meyer, Peter Eisenman. I mean, there were so many great architects mm-hmm. there in New York City. And, and you get to go to their lectures and possibly talk in person. So from that point, it was very exciting. And I couldn't have done that let's say, back in Japan. And uh, so I was very excited. Education-wise, I got shattered because the first two years was general studies. Mm-hmm. In the States, you need to take this liberal arts and general studies, so-called general studies, and yes, history and humanity, all the other, you know, study you have to do. Non-architectural stuff, it's called. <laughs> very frustrated. So I remember every class, I said, I want to do architecture. Can I skip? Can I take exam to skip? I'm going to go skip the third year, which is essentially the first year of architecture. Anyway, after two months, every professor called me, oh, Mr. Architecture. (laughs) Nickname. Did any of it work? Did you get to skip? No. (laughs) No, 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 no. I tried. Yeah. Some, yes, I actually skipped and um, passed and anyhow. But finally, third year came. So I was so excited. But when you're too excited, you want to throw a lot of ideas and becomes too much and you built up unnecessary pressure for you because I think I suppose I was good mm-hmm. or might be better than little bit better than good when you do the presentation you get this almost the whole university come see you present 
And after a few projects, I think I got to that point. So the pressure built on. But anyhow, I met this professor called Peter Sweeney, who I ended up working for. Peter studied at Cooper Union Architectural Association in London, which then I, I went to. He said, you, you shouldn't be in New York in this university. <laughs> okay. You should be in London oh. because in London you have such, 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 right? And at the time, I think Zahadid was just starting her, I think it was the Vitra Fire Station, mm-hmm. was being under construction. And uh, Rem Kuhaus, of course, I, I ended up having him as my workshop tutor in, in London. And, and anyway, these guys were doing something unbelievable, right? So as a student, imagine, wow, I want to go closer to them. Yep. And Peter Sweeney, Peter said, look, you have to be there. And uh, so he recommended me to, to go there. And then I worked in his office in Soho. I remember every so often he said, Koichi, you have to go to London. Wow. And thanks to his persistence as a boss, I sort of said, okay, I, let me just go there and check it out. And I went to London, gee, I loved it. I loved a lot of things that I saw instantly. Talking about first impression, yeah. the scale drop for yes. me and, and become more intimate again. Mm. And uh, what I like really about the people, people equally that more diverse American culture is diverse, but very much they live in the bubble, let's say. Whereas the UK, well, London was more about Europe, Europeans. Yes. And of course, uh, people from UK. I felt the more sense of diversity, culturally speaking. Yeah. So I would meet the guy come from came from France, speak, of course, completely different language and bring different food, different culture, Spanish, great Spanish friends. Again, completely different culture and they, they look, look at the world so differently. And yet they came from very close within two or three hours. Well, flight. it's true. I mean, here we only get into state. You can yeah. still fly for five hours and not get out yeah. of Australia. So I was really impressed. Swedish, French, Spanish, Italian. Wow, there's so many mix of students and I really enjoyed it. So have you finished your degree by this point or are you doing some of it in so London? I transferred. You transferred. From New York and then to London. Yes. And it's a bit of a gamble at the time was for me because AA was known for very hard to finish or graduate. Right. And obviously my parents was extremely concerned. <laughs> Would you even make it right. to, to end of university? So anyhow, I, I had to take that, made a call. So anyway, I, I chose to have a year out in London. Yes. And then my intention was to head back to New York. Okay. So, which I did. So okay. by the time I head back to New York and I said, I'm going to restart. And they did not accept my credits, the professors, because they saw this oh, no. architecture project that are so, let me say, different from not just American, but at the time where I was City, City University School of Architecture, it was more pragmatic. The one that I got from AA, of course, it's super cutting edge. It was taught by all these so Hadid and cool. So you've and, so you've done what a year in London. Yeah. And then you've come back, but you haven't been able to get any credit for any no, of that stuff. Because they saw this is way too conceptual. Oh, you cannot wow. build this today. This is not architecture. This is ah, this is not. We cannot accept this. How did you feel? No, I was completely disappointed. I, I mean, I knew we did great. Well, at AA, every year's thesis, you don't have this curriculum. So mm. you do one thesis. So it's either you pass or fail, really. 
and uh, everything that you do, either history or structures, anything that you do need to relate to your project one yes. way or another. So you built up a whole argument based on one conceptual idea that you committed for 12 months. And as a student, this is really a risk-taking risk process and you really have to commit and yeah. you cannot go back. So a lot of people failed. My friends failed. And, and these people are very successful, don't get me wrong, in, in today's field. Mm -hmm. But they had to redo that year. Gosh. So I didn't do that. I went straight. Uh, yes. So relatively very good performance. <laughs> but back in New York, they didn't like what I was doing. Okay. It was too conceptual. So I knew I had to stay in London. Obviously, you, you took pragmatic or conceptual. Do I want to be call it just an architect versus do I want to push the boundary yeah. in a profession? And I've seen, of course, by then I met Zaha Did. Kuhas was my last year. So I met a few great architects. Mm. Peter Eisman was in library and, and uh, Jeff Kipnis. And like, unbelievable. You just talk to them, you know. And uh, so I knew I had to stay mm -hmm. there. And uh, despite the potential risk of I might have to repeat two or three years just to graduate. So in I, London. In London. Yeah. Yeah. But anyhow, so London and, and that was, I think for me, it was very important part of my career mm -hmm. in terms of creating that foundation. I knew I, I cannot just be an architect in a pragmatic sense. Mm -hmm. I have this degree mm -hmm. that professionally, even speaking, some uh, company may not even take this yeah. type of student with this highly conceptual background mm -hmm. and so I took that risk and I knew I had to keep pushing from mm -hmm. that sense so in other words the attitude that I learned from this particular school in this particular environment and let me say with my friends also equally motivated me and pushed me and today I still talk to these friends mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're all equally successful in their own right and I think it was a wonderful experience mm -hmm. and I cherish it even today yeah yeah and you mentioned some great people that you were around. Maybe could you just talk a little bit about Rem or how he changed some of the... Rem Kuhas was... When I first met him, I remember he came to our studio and and actually didn't like his architecture. It was very not intuitive, let's say, even for him at the time, 1995. Yeah, he came, I met 1995. His practice itself was not to today's standard. Some of the details and some of the project were very much let's say unfinished mm -hmm. or not properly finished. Yeah. So he got a lot of criticized then. But in terms of thinking, he is just unbelievable. It, it really turned everything upside down for me. Yes. And and his way of looking at the world is so liberating. And and he will see something negative with a positive mindset and turn that into his drive. Yeah. And then I really fell for it. So he's really one of my reasons then I really pushed to become an architect because I wanted to make the better version of the world yes. today, just like Rem saw it. Yeah. He accepted all the problems, all the challenges in the world today, as we know. Mm -hmm. It's not a perfect world, but once you accept that, wow, you can do so much. There's so much possibility and potential in what you can do as an architect, professional architect. Mm. Yeah. He's just got an amazing presence yeah. about him yeah. as well. It's interesting. So I did the project in uh, Doha, yes. in Qatar. We had the same client. Mm -hmm. So a grand opening of National Museum of Qatar, inside which we, we did the six interiors. So Rem was there. So I had to say hello. Right? Yeah. This has been 27 years since. Wow. <laughs> anyway, something like that. 
retirement. And naively again, say, Ram, do you remember? Of course, he won't remember me. But he, he looked at me and said, oh, such and such. Yes. Uh, you came to our studio, remember, that day. And he remembered it. He smiled right. and said, yes, of course, I remember. I mean, he didn't remember me in particularly, but it's really wonderful that despite we as an architects, uh, you know, went, went on to do other things. But somehow I feel that his DNA or what he planted in my brain is still there and, and it's been growing. Mm. Sometimes I really feel that this is really thanks to him that I don't know, liberated my mind. And I just wanted to thank him. Mm. But he, strangely, he was very shy. So we went to same functions, same party, all this, but we didn't talk. But I just thought he did all the necessary thing for me to be who I am today. I don't need to bother him anymore, you know. <laughs> That's all I needed from him. And, and gee, he does that to so many people and inspire and empower, I suppose, the, a lot of industry. And it's a good on him. Yeah, yeah. What a beautiful legacy. So, Koichi, we're at London now, mm-hmm. okay, and you've, you've finished everything, finished all your studies. Where do you go to next? Yeah. So I had this Japanese architects came to London to present RIBA, Royal Institute of British Architects. Mm-hmm. So each had a presentation and 80% of which did not speak English. <laughs> so they were looking for a translator. They could not find translator. And I was a student, of course, finished, just finished. I think I was, I, I was just finishing. Somebody rang me and said, you're the only one can do this. So I ended up, let's say, interpreting some of the architects. And there was Kazuyo Sejima, Shivon Pritzker, and then was very young, up and coming. And there was Kengo Kuma. Yes. Of course, now I work closely with. And Tsushi Kitagawara. So I ended up working for him. Satsushi was also one. So I ended up interpreting their lecture. Yes. And and especially my ex-boss, Atsushi's lecture, was he, he likes surrealism and a lot of art reference, very hard to translate. Yeah, right. How far I was struggling, but I just had to power through. Somehow I got through and I got the plot for, for the translation. And then I didn't know, but next day, every architect, this at the time for me was uh, all the architects I respected growing up and uh, also studying architecture were in front of me said, do you want the job? Do, do you want to work for me? Wow. I had like three offers and I, I somehow I connected with that sushi. So I said, look, I really love to try. So I ended up going back to Japan mm-hmm. with that. And, and so I did two years and, and Atsushi had the competition, invited competition. This was the Museum Contemporary Art MCA, mm-hmm. Sydney. Yes. Controversial <laughs> at the time. So Architects won and then another competition held. And so this was con- controversial time. But we were one of the competitors invited then. One of the first one, I think. Mm-hmm. There's ended up being three competitions. So uh, we were on the first uh, competition in 1990. Seven or eight, something, something like that, before Olympic, anyway. Yes. So we were invited to come to Sydney. So that was my first time here. Yeah, and first impression again, come off the airplane. I loved it. Different from, I'd say, Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Different from New York. Sydney just instantly, I felt my body just blended in, like right. instantly. The air, the fresh air. The temperature was mm. perfect. The sun was so beautiful. And then extension of that, I really liked the harbour. People were incredibly nice. I remember even the cafe or rest anywhere I went, people were so warm. Mm. I, I just loved it. 
And I remember that impression. And I mean, still today, I still think Sydney is the best city in the world. Yeah. You know? And that's how I ended up in Sydney. Really? Yeah. And and from that time, you never left? So then I had to go back. back. I had the offer from architects that we collaborated with. Mm. So then, you know, I took that offer. Say, oh, I just try one year. Again, yeah. naively. Maybe one year is okay. And uh, in Japan, it's incredibly hard to be an architect in terms of hours, working hours. And at the time, was still economy was booming. So oof, long hours. I thought, well, coming here probably felt like a little bit, you know, more space and yes. more time for me, yep. my life. And again, naively. But anyhow, I came. I loved it. So I said, maybe I'd love to stay. So I negotiated and ended up staying since. So this was 1998, isn't it? 1998. So you're here in Sydney, Australia. What, what would be the first kind of defining project for you whilst you were here? To be honest, I actually didn't like what I was learning. Okay. Because this felt like going back to New York days. Right. All this glass box, mm. boxes, right? And it's, I wouldn't say formulated, but formula it's like almost a formula yep. in some way catalog shopping mm-hmm. you just manipulate the skin and i, I don't know I, I felt really nice about this curtain wall skyscrapers that comes one after another and then of course this is a, about building up economy and very much a commercialized entity and, and nevertheless, I learned the rules about local regulations and constructions and how to deal with builders and all that in an Australian way, mm-hmm. as, opposed, as opposed to Japanese way. And I, I dedicate myself and respected uh, education and experience that I gained here. But I kept questioning. Mm. Then you go one day, like you get depressed and you walk along the circular quay and you see this wonderful piece of architecture in Sydney Opera House. Mm. And you just go, wow, how on earth we produce or build this mm. masterpiece. I used to go around and around and around and admiring every every details and corners. And, and I mean, I, the story I behind love, it always fascinates me because yeah. that was in the waste bin. They chucked yeah, that out of the competition. Be, yeah. And then when it was built, it was just such a controversy. Yeah. And now I, I always look at it and think, how could you ever not have it? You know. Mm. Mm. And at the time where... Maybe they struggle because they didn't have enough technology, let's mm. say computers or analytical tools to do what they needed to do. And of course, it took so long to do uh, what they needed to do. And, and I'm sure architects make sure they're passionate about getting the quality right. Mm. But it's something about Opera House and the Botanical Garden equally. It's just a wonderful combination. So when I was stressed or I don't know, I needed some motivation. I used to go to Opera House and the Botanical Garden. That was my routine. Okay. By then I'm fixed. Mm-hmm. By the time I come out of the nature, mm-hmm. it was fixed. And that, so that was my routine. And I questioned like, how, how can you, how can we combine you know, those sculptural quality that it's almost emotional? Like people, everybody that sees get emotionally connected to this piece of architecture. And nature, of course, nature is just wonderful. Everybody uh, wants to be one way or another in mm. nature. And uh, you get this recharge and recover psychologically in, in many, many ways. So imagine combining that. And this was the same question I had in New York in Central Park. Mm-hmm. I hated the building, but I went to Central Park. I loved it. Instantly, I loved it. I played baseball 6 a.m. every Saturday and I loved it. I didn't want to get out. I wanted to live in Central Park. So that questioning, why can't architecture be 
bit like Central Park, but vertical mm. form. Or I mean, this was, I suppose, 1990s, I was sort of questioning. And there was a lot of theory that started to happen. Now mm-hmm. we call it biophilic. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it was way too radical. But I was already questioning. My inclination was not so much towards architecture as a built form, but more the landscape architecture or mm-hmm. landscape urbanism. Yes. So landscape was more the natural part should be more prominent in terms of expression of integration, whatever it is, mm. has that more living quality. Mm. You know, so that was already questioning of wow, twenty odd years ago. Mm-hmm. I suppose it took me all these years to get to what we're doing but, today. Yes. Because you know? that is a lot of tenacity over over time. What's kept you motivated during that time? I think what motivated, and obviously I always wanted to have my practice. Mm-hmm. So that was my first motivation. I always wanted to test my limit. And this come from maybe my BMX days mm-hmm. because you have to find your balance constantly and you can't get off the bike, right? Whatever position you are in spinning or jumping, whatever it is. And you you, you slowly find your edge and you, you fell off and then you try, you know, you keep slowly pushing. And I like being in that state. Like even like riding bicycle, you just ride. To me, it's a bit boring <laughs> if this was my living, my yes. life. I like to be on the edge doing things that, wow, is really exciting. Perhaps means to other people, excites other people, inspire other people. Yeah. So architecture was the same. I, I wanted to sort of push the boundary and see the new ideas. And I mean, again, my education from London had that member, the conceptual commitment to mm. being more conceptual and mm pushing forward into the future and imagining that future for the better world. Mm. So this was really what drove me and motivated me all the time. And recently, of course, with the pandemic situation that we all experience, my motivation has another, we really want to contribute to a more sustainable making of the sustainable world. We've talked a lot about commercial buildings and and we'll go back to that, Mm. but you've also designed some beautiful houses. How do you, what do you think about on a a smaller scale when you're designing a house from a sustainability perspective? I think the houses are a little bit more straightforward, I'd say. Mm. I mean, we don't like enclosed walls after walls. So we tend to propose open style living. So a lot of things are open or Mm -hmm. openable or Mm -hmm. flexible and essentially creating one big space. And that has much better connection to outside world. So doing something small, we haven't done many houses, but the ones that we realize it's really about lifestyle and it's really not about design. Actually, it's Mm -hmm. not about my design or my ego or my signature, things like that, I really don't put emphasis on. But we really study how they want to live, how they can improve, future-proof, do they want to have family? Or they, so there's a lot of thoughts going in. Mm-hmm. It's really about influencing this particular client's yep. future. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to be very careful, but equally, no one's perfect. We're trying to give space to them, like flexibility, that life changes, whatever it is, there is that room. <laughs> for not the errors but room for changes let's say and and i think that is my i suppose a lot of philosophy that you really need to have the breathing space 
in design and we, we design the breeze, as, as we say, and create this more open and honest and a lot of light. And I was going to ask because I love that design to breeze, but from what you've talked about today, I wondered, and I grew up in Australia, and the backyard was such a thing. Is that, did you notice that culturally? Because I think one of the reasons Central Park is so successful is because you do have that apartment sort of environment people are pushed out to these public spaces did you notice that coming here or does it not really play a big part i think the one thing that really impacted on my design and and this is a massive change obviously japan is really about internalized yes and, and all about privacy establishing that death so desperately because it's so dense tokyo mm-hmm. you talk about tiny room mm-hmm. and the neighbor is just right there yep. there's no distance and uh, was here because we, we are fortunate to have a little bit of separation, mm. more separation than, let's say, density compared to Tokyo, having that public space or the space is becoming very important. And I was very aware of this outdoor quality because, the, again, the climate allows us to have this type of lifestyle mm-hmm. and inside but equally outside importance of having that outside because we do barbecue, barbie and outdoor style lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It's very much what we want. And I suppose Australian dream house would have a lot of big garden with the pools. And yeah. so, yeah, so I, my thoughts start to shift towards emphasizing that. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of it in Japan design inside up, perhaps here I'm more conscious of doing outside in. Yeah. And especially post COVID, it's really about bringing the nature back into city, back into your living Mm. so it's really about outside in Mm. you did speak to our members after you won your project for arc and we have again just spoken a little bit about this i guess desire to sort of there's a lot of cities that a lot of glass is used can you talk to us a little bit about how brick was chosen for arc and and what really motivated that choice so this was design excellence competition yes. by City of Sydney. It was involved. We were in a situation as a very much young practice. We had to take big risk to win it. We knew we could not win it just doing, let's say, normal. <laughs> approach. I don't think you do normal though, Kawichi. No, no. <laughs> but this was people forgotten. This is us. This was our second project that right. we built. Right. Wow. So th- we had to win competition. And and so I remember before we went to see the site, and of course, one way or another, you've been to the site or walked past the site, but you really don't recall the, the quality of this particular site. And so we talk, I remember talking about let's do glass building mm-hmm. as a contrast because conservation, some heritage listed, Maybe it's good to have a contrast or you're mistaken that you see this new building. Yep. Maybe just suppose new rather than old. So you highlight by way of doing that the old context. Mm-hmm. So this was very tempting. I took my team of architects to site. Wow, we fell in love with the materials bricks mm-hmm. surrounded us. And and I think we stopped talking about our site. <laughs> we start talking about the building that adjacent to us and, and we start taking photo of the bricks and intricacy of bricks and start sort of documenting the surrounding context. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the time we went back and after a few days, we knew we had to work with bricks. And that was the big game changer as a starting point. And, and we really enjoyed, I think we went strength to strength afterwards and it was really not about doing all new. So it was trying to respect uh, the context and, and this brick building that we did 
equally a brand new building, but needed to sort of almost seamlessly blend in. So we studied the proportions, the windows, arches, everything that was around us. And we drew it, dimension it, all these things. So it was almost echoing that study, built up a podium concept. The clients at the brief that um, they wanted the contrast of old and new, mm-hmm. uh, the old respect the context and the history of the context, the new tower, let's say, moving to more futuristic parts of the city. And so it was an intentionally contrasting scheme. But the brick, when we design the brick, obviously you have to respect the brick crossing. There's a lot of limitation, but we're trying to, again, the push boundary within that limitation. I think one guy did, they bought, brought the Lego and we were yes. testing with the Lego. And, and at some point we said, wow, can we actually, well, if we win this competition, can we actually build it? Because it's so intricate and complex. But somehow, I don't know, we had this spirit that, you know what, it's a young practice. We just said, well, let's just all in, just go for it. Yeah. And I think that spirit you need mm. perhaps to win competition and do something so extraordinary out of everyday's materialities. And uh, so I'm glad we actually pushed that. Our case in many ways for us was a lot of challenge because we never thought we would use bricks okay. as a practice. We wanted something more futuristic. We want to relate it to today or tomorrow rather than the past. Mm-hmm. So this was, for even for us, was very bold yeah. decision to make. And you, you have talked to me a little bit before, but I'm wondering whether you can talk to it again. Just the role of the prototypes. I know you did a lot of experimenting. Can yeah. you elaborate on that a little so bit? So we obviously did the Lego blocks mm-hmm. experimentation and we had the bricks uh, in office and trying to work out the in- intricate parts and eventually we put in a builder's contract to build the one-to-one mock-up. Mm-hmm. This was very important for us. So they built one, which was okay. So they probably end up doing three or four mm-hmm. experimentations until when we were sort of satisfied and then running out of time so we had to then implement it on site. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's wonderful about BRICS is it's really about communication. It really shows how much communication you made <laughs> throughout the process that result, you know, in outcome and the quality, so on and so forth. So we were very, very careful of how we laid and the colour of the grout and we tested so many different types. And so, of course, Hutchinson as a main contractor, Favetti uh, built brick parts and facade and it was really wonderful to work with. And what surprised you the most about working with bricks? I thought it was very inflexible. I mean, inflexible in terms of form making or mm. shape making. And by then we were sort of known for form making part. Mm. And so we didn't want to lose that, not identity, but quality from our practice. So we sort of pushed within what we could do. And also we looked at Frank Gehry just finished then the UTS and I went to see, of course, and something I liked, something I didn't like. So we're really trying to improve. So the, the team that did the Gary's yes. came to Pavetis, our, yes. our, our building. And, and some of them said some parts that Gary's are very complex. Some parts arc is much harder because you really need to work with the structure. Mm-hmm. In other words, gravity. Mm. And the stepping part, we were allowed to come out one third, but we kept pushing to halfway point, like tipping point, yes. as I say. And some brick during experimentation failed. Yes. <laughs> so we kept it. So we stopped uh, just before and 
and then you have to create the arc, which mm. work in compression. Then you need to keep stepping out. So we had the prop until you got off the prop. You don't know whether that's going to hold. <laughs> and that tension, I, I don't know. I've seen any other project that has made out of brick that has that tension. Almost brick masonry and meant to work with the gravity, the chunkiness, the heaviness. But this is like almost very light. Yeah. Very thin and tapered and thin look. And of course, functionally, we want to bring more light. We mm. have very strict, uh, you know, at the time, SEP 65 rules. So we, we needed to really calculate that angle. In, in summer, you get deeper shadow, of course. Winter, you get the lighting. Yes. The summer, you get beautiful shadow. Mm. So it, it worked out in the end. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think a couple of years ago, I studied the Duomo in Florence. And that's actually made out of brick. But back then they just used to test whether it failed or not by running out if it fell in, yeah. it didn't work. So yeah. You know, I remember my AA days. So the structural, one of the assignment was to build the dome. Yes. Out of pieces. And I think I made out of plaster. So anyway, you have to stack. Yeah. And then, so the next following week, the tutor would say, stand on it. Right. So you have to stand on it. And it didn't fail. Oh. And he said, no, get another guy to stand on it oh, until no. it fails. Document until it fails. And how did and you go? eventually fell, of course. How right? many guys were standing on it? I think it, it was three guys. Three. Okay. And, and that's really interesting. Maybe I had that sort of, my body remembered that yes. experiment. Arc was a bit like that. We were testing to the limit. Yes. And uh, we know we couldn't go any further. Oh. And it really shows that the process in the facade is we get a lot of good feedback. But equally, really, it speaks for itself. I don't need to explain it. No. Yeah. And it's validated your choice as yeah. well. Yeah. Koichi, just finally thinking about sustainability and the role of the environment, where do you see architects play a part in that? We think that sustainability lies on leadership. Let's call it our leadership. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, today's world, we are very much behind. Sustainability is just holistically Speaking, industrial revolution was 1820, let's say 1840, 1820, 200 years ago. Mm. And 2021, today's worlds were built based on that revolutions, the thought. And Mm. the steam came and engineering came. And we have, of course, the two big wars that destroyed the, the parts of the world. And along the way, we become very much commercialized. And let's say parts of the nature, natural environment was destroyed. Mm-hmm. So 200 years. So now moving forward, a lot of country pledged Paris, in Paris Accord. 2050, 2060, mm-hmm. even China is 2060. So 29 years to go. Mm-hmm. We've done this, let's say 200 years. The temperature of Earth was below zero. Mm-hmm. Around 2000 become plus and then keep rising and accelerating to stop that we need to do something extraordinary and and to fast track that 200 years doing let's say to shorten it in next 20 odd years we need to rely on technology and we need to rely on innovation and possibly artificial intelligence may play play a part in this and choice of materiality, responsibilities and architects as a whole to achieve the world of what I call carbon neutrality, we must do and consciously contribute to our practice every day, starting today, not tomorrow. We even investigating just because the carbon neutrality 
rely on everybody to be carbon neutral, which may may not happen. So we commit to what industry call carbon positive, climate positive. Mm. So carbon positive house, carbon positive architecture. It's a bit confusing, but to really create the architecture that, let's say, if it, this is a house, house with no bills. Yes. So you don't rely on the grid. You don't mm. rely, on, I suppose, anything else. But you could generate. But equally, extra energy that you generate, you can contribute back to societies. So we are already in experimentation in some of the houses that our clients committed, not even carbon neutral, carbon positive dwellings. We were approached by Bloomberg Media, which was really thankful, to present the prototype of the carbon positive dwelling. We designed the house called Sunflower House. Yes. And uh, this has been very popular. We got approached by a lot of clients to either do literal version of it or their version of it. And that's the power of what we can do. And if you imagine, 40, almost 40% of construction in our industry contributes to the greenhouse emission problems. 40%. Mm. If we can at least tackle this, maybe we might resolve half of the problem. And then 80% of what we do as a designer who set the outcome. Right. Why are you designing? Or 80% you can set the agenda and possibly change the world accordingly. Well, I think it's that thing, like it, people believe it when they see it. So we do rely on creatives to show people the way. And I think sometimes people don't know what they want until it's presented in front of them. Is that something that you've said you've experienced with your clients? Yeah. I mean, seeing is believing. And yes. people want to see, to believe it. But we as a creative need to envision it. So we need to imagine it. And, and, and that's what we can do, really. And, and that's what we are trained to do. So while as people may not have that imagination, we can show the way. Sustainability is very important agenda. And like every day I look at my sons, for instance, mm. and my children, I think I really, I get motivated mm. to do more for their generations. So equally, I love nature and I cycle national park and sometimes seeing nature being destroyed really gives me a motivation to rectify it in some way within my power and my intention to do so as an architect. Yeah. And, and children do have a much more intuitive sense of the world. I know my daughter has said to me, well, we need to look after this planet because we can't move to another one. Mm. And she's totally right. <laughs> she's <Yeah>. only nine. Yeah. <laughs> Koichi, this has just been fascinating and I've really enjoyed hearing everything. I had no idea you were a BMX bandit, which may be your new title. But we're going to move into the to the rapid fire questions yep. now. Mm-hmm. And any answer is acceptable. Reading the news, newspaper or online? Online. Handwriting or typing? Typing. For sketching ideas and concepts, would you use a pencil, a pen or an e-pen? Pencil. Do you like to read books or listen to audio books? Read books. What is important to you, style or substance? Substance. Coffee or tea? Coffee. <laughs> TV shows or movies? Movies. Antique or brand new? Brand new. Call or text? Call. Travel back in time or into the future? Into the future. Exterior or interior? Exterior. Video games or board games? Video games. Form or function? Function. Complex or simple with relation to design? Simple. Koichi, thank you so much. It's been truly my total pleasure. Thank you so much. If you have enjoyed this podcast, 
please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.